Well, I think for those people who have had a personal meditation or yoga practice for any amount of time or have been on the spiritual growth path, this is really what you've been training for. I think one thing that meditation does is it encourages, before anything else, our own experience. Set up some structure in your life so that you can be with your own experience and you can allow that to have its say in what your emotional response is going to be and take some power back in that. Allow your own internal wisdom its seat at your counsel. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Alan Isbell is a certified mindfulness instructor, a men's coach, and a rising leader in the men's movement who has trained hundreds of individuals around the United States. I have mentored under Alan and wanted to have him on the show to share his expertise. Whether he is coaching men, leading retreats, or introducing mindfulness in schools, Alan embodies what he teaches. He has engaged in hundreds of hours of meditation practice and continues to work with his mentors and teachers. With a grounded presence and unique humor, Alan draws upon diverse influences in ancient wisdom and modern science, as well as his own depth of experience while sharing with others the lifelong art of living wisely with a clear mind and an open heart. Alan is the founder of Live Wise Mindfulness, co-founder of Men's Wisdom Work, that provides men's coach training and personal development programs and retreats, and a coach on the Zenbox Wellness app. Tune in for this enlightening episode with Alan Isbell and tune out the distractions that keep you from being in the here and now. Alan, I want to welcome you to the show, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Todd. I know your area of expertise is mindfulness, which is one of the reasons why I invited you on the show. It's become a bit of a buzzword lately, and I just want to get your perception on what mindfulness is. So if you could break that down a little bit for us. It's definitely become a, a buzzword, for better or for worse. I think there's arguments on both sides that it, that it is better to, to have it be so widespread. There's also some downsides too, some things getting lost in translation. Um, but what I like to do is kind of put it in two different pockets. One is sort of the quality of mindfulness and the other is the practice. And I find that in common conversation, it can be sort of thrown about as both. Someone can say mindfulness and be talking about the actual practice of it like maybe the formal practice of mindfulness meditation, or they could be talking about the quality, right? Like to be mindful of something, to be aware of something. And so that's the, that's the first place I'd like to start that we can differentiate those. And to me, the practice of mindfulness is really the, the intentional uh, art of paying attention 
and paying attention in a certain way. Um, we might say it's uh, a way that's non-judgmental, that's not focused on good or bad or right and wrong. The, the art of it is really to sort of cut through our tendency to uh, want things and not want things and uh, sort of sit right in the middle of being with what is. And then the, the actual like, quality of mindfulness is sort of that, but in a sort of more moment-to-moment -moment practice where we can be how we walk, how we eat, how we, how we listen, how we talk with somebody. And the, the practice of mindfulness supports our, our sort of quality of being aware and in the moment and, um, and vice versa. The more we practice that art of paying attention, the more we can bring into our daily lives and the more we bring into our daily lives, the more we can sort of strengthen that, that muscle of our mindfulness. So I first got to know you, Alan, through a men's coaching group that you were co-leading and, and co-created. And we were actually on a, a personal, or sorry, an in-person retreat in Ojai that you were hosting. And up to that point, I didn't know you very well, but I recall there was one exercise where we were partnered with another man and you were there in my group and we were giving a, given a task and I was not being sparked by the task, I'll say. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't actually remember what it was. And I remember you stepped up to me six inches from my face and I could feel your presence. And for lack of a better word, I could feel your mindfulness. I don't remember what you said to me, but you said something that just reached inside of me and just kind of cracked open my heart so that I could be more present in that situation. And in that moment, you earned all the respect for me that, that I could have asked for. It was a really powerful moment for me. So I'm I very aware that you practice what it is that you teach. Speaking of teaching, can we talk some about the work that you do? I know you, you do the men's coaching. You have, a, yeah. you have that very powerful outlet that you're connecting with men. And then you also do some mindfulness coaching or, or teaching. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah. So actually my, my journey of teaching others in meditation practice really started in the classroom because a couple years after graduating college, I ended up back in the high school classroom teaching Spanish. And it was there that I sort of had this opportunity to really organically share mindfulness practice. And I started doing it with my students and I saw this massive change in, in, First and foremost, my experience as a teacher, um, having those moments of stillness uh, and practice in my seven-hour day was a game changer. And then I saw this change happening in my students, them becoming more authentic and more, uh, more present. And that was my first sort of glimpse into, um, for one, sharing it with other people. I had been practicing on my own since I was 16. Um, but I saw the power in sharing it with others. And I also saw my love for it. And it's been something I, I had been studying on my own and practicing um, for a long time up until that point. And so I saw how much I loved it. And um, it really sparked something in me. 
and I decided that that was what I wanted to to do was to was to share that with other people and so I started to move out of that classroom and into other classrooms to share with other teachers how they could first and foremost practice it themselves because if those of us who are connected to the education sector we know our students are stressed while our teachers are also stressed especially those in the the k-12 through public school system and so I, I spent a lot of time giving workshops and uh training schools from kindergarten all the way up to college actually uh, around how they could bring these these practices to the classroom and there naturally I, I sort of moved out and started to uh, offer workshops and trainings for businesses one-on-one -on -one with CEOs and managers and yeah it, it um, it's something that you know if you spend a lot of time doing something that you really love the the sharing of it is organic the sharing of it just comes and so I just have sort of kind of a funny word to use, but capitalized on that and have, yeah, been luckily able to continue doing so these last four years, five years. What is LiveWise Mindfulness? LiveWise Mindfulness is, is the company that I created to be able to, to do this. And it represents myself. And I also have in the past had a couple of different partnerships and one current one that I, that I'll, sort of combine forces with in order to be more effective. So for example, right now I've joined forces with a leadership company and we deliver mindful leadership programming to, to schools and businesses. And yeah, LiveWise just represents sort of the, the goal, right? Is the, the goal of this practice for me is to live more wisely. What does mindfulness look like in practice to you in your daily life? Well, the first would be the actual sitting practice of meditation. And that could look, that can look differently depending on my day and how much time I have. But like I said, I sort of, I like to not compartmentalize them, but I do like to think of it as a sort of formal practice of mindfulness, which can look like sitting or standing or um, lying on the ground and paying attention in a certain way, moving our awareness, our attention in a, in a certain systematic way. And then the real practice begins after that, you know, when you get off the cushion, when you get off the mat, taking that into the world. And for me, that, that can be, it can be anything. It can be how, how I hold myself, the, the way that I walk, the way that I sit, the ability for me to recognize when my mind has wandered amidst a conversation or it, noticing my tendencies to defend or uh, avoid, like having a subtle awareness of sort of my internal experience um, and then bringing that to the moment, allowing that awareness to change my sort of um, condition or, or habit that might not be in highest service to me or to the person I'm relating with. I'm sure some listeners are interested in being more mindful, interested in yeah. having a meditation practice, but it's just something that even I also find it gets dropped easily when life gets a bit yeah. hectic. And I'll always remember you and I had a, a chat several months ago and 
you told me that that morning you enjoyed your cup of coffee and you watched the steam rise off of it and you realized that you hadn't done that in so long. Right. So right. you, as a mindful teacher, as someone who's immersed in this, even you, I presume, have to con consciously and frequently remind yourself oh, yeah. to be mindful in the present. Do you have any tips or advice for people who are, are struggling to to get into any sort of practice of mindfulness? Well, one would be start teaching it because when you teach something, it's because you need to learn it. And it also helps you to learn it much, much better, right? If you can teach something effectively. And I, when you said that, I would, my first thought was, well, it might be a bit tough for some people, but then I realized anyone who's a parent has a perfect, yeah. perfect audience to exactly. not only try to practice it, but also to teach it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a big piece is the practicing part because then the teaching comes organically. Then the teaching is like how you relate. Um, and kids, especially if, if you're trying to teach them, but you're not walking the walk, they see through it like that. And so in a practical sense, I think, um, I think developing even just a little bit of time during your day or setting yourself up with, for a little bit of time to be undistracted to be in the moment. And it could look like anything. It could look like sitting on the couch with that cup of coffee and just watching the steam rise and enjoying how that moment uh, is. Or it could be somewhat of a more formal practice where you, where you sit, you sort of the beginning of the practice is to, is to observe your breath and to let your mind become subtle and attentive to the movement of your breath as it goes in and out. And it's a challenge. We live in a, in a culture where, you know, our distractions are on constant barrage. And so it can be really easy to, well, for one, it can be really boring because it's much different than our normal sort of entertain me attitude. It can be very dry, but it also can be very, it can be many, many things, you know, much more than that. But uh, some, some practical tips I would say are, are one, build it into your day. So don't try and fit it in. When you try and fit it into your day, like inevitably it will be lost. It will be pushed aside and pushed back. So build it into your day, plan out some time that you can maybe wake up a little earlier or um, shut down a little earlier from your work so that you have five, 10, 15, 20 minutes that you can dedicate to it. Another is have a space that you can go to consistently our habits are, are best acted on when we have zero to no resistance uh, or little to no resistance to like actually do that habit, that practice. So if you have to like grab your cushion or set up your mat or set up your space every time you want to practice uh, sort of formally, that would be a barrier. But if you have a little corner of your house or your room that you can just set up like a comfortable space for you to dedicate to having your mindfulness practice, um, that can be really effective in just establishing ease and being able to repeat it. Yeah, and the other is have a, you know, have a community that, that prioritizes this. And so right now we're, we're in quarantine time and uh, that might look like having a, a community online that, that either supports you, or can practice together, but having other people involved, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, it's why monks gather together. It's, can be easier to practice in a community to support our internal mindfulness and uh, our, our external experience of that mindfulness. We, we can support each other. We can deepen each other 
So those are a few practical tips. I have a little mindfulness practice that I've never named until just now, but I'm going to call it the one breath practice. And mm. it is me coming in to my state of presence and taking one breath of awareness, which means mm. I just, I follow that breath and I just become aware that I am actually breathing. And there are certain days that it, that one breath won't happen until 7 p.m. at night when I'll realize, right. wow, I don't even remember breathing yet today. Right. But I'll often be reminded of it. I've actually cued myself to be reminded of it. Anytime I do anything that's maybe a little bit clumsy, rushing to put away dishes, clinking dishware, maybe I get a little irritable with my kids, whatever it might be, if there's something that feels like I'm rushing too far ahead or not in the moment, it breaks me to that one breath practice. And I find just coming back to that single breath as many times as I can during the day has been so helpful at putting me in the moment. And normally it ends up being more than one breath when I do it because right. that one breath will trigger the second breath and then the third. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having those cues can be really important. Like having a cue that reminds you to be mindful. That's really the whole thing is just remembering to be mindful. So whether that's feeling rushed or feeling clumsy and allowing that to be like your reminder, your alarm to be mindful. Um, some other ones that I've done in the past, it's useful to just have one that you sort of take and then just do that. Other simple ones that I've done are just while you're brushing your teeth. It's, it's an activity we do two, three, four times a day that we could just totally be zoned out of. So just to bring your attention to the movements of brushing your teeth, to your breath as you brush your teeth, um, or before you turn your phone on, you know, in the morning, using that moment of like waiting for it to power up to take that breath of awareness. So having those little cues can be really helpful. The toothbrushing reminds me of one also that I, I guess it is a mindfulness practice. I'm currently trying to do everything with my non-dominant hand including nice. brushing my teeth, which is so incredibly awkward at first, mm -hmm. but I can't think about anything else. I'm right. trying to chop vegetables with my left hand or brush my teeth with my left hand. Wow, you're going for chopping too. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend it, but I'm trying. <laughs> Until I get impatient and then I switch to my dominant hand. Right, and then it reminds you to take your mindful breath. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm curious who or what has influenced you into this calling and life. It's funny. I remember, I'll just give some context before this, that the main practice that I do is, is Vipassana, which is basically what mind, like secular mindfulness is, like what we talk about mindfulness. When we say mindfulness in the Western world, we're basically talking about Vipassana, um, which is a certain style of, of meditation practice. And in it, you usually start with being aware of your breath, and then you move to the sensations of your body. And the practice is to observe those sensations um, as, uh, as best you can. You just observe the moment-to-moment -moment experience of sensation on your body. And I remember being like three or four, maybe five, and when I couldn't fall asleep at night, I would play with my attention. I would play with my awareness to see, can I feel my left elbow? Can I feel the sensation of my right calf? Can I feel what it feels like, like 
directly on my belly button or whatever it was, just to play with my attention, to, to feel that sensation. So when I first went and did my, my, um, the first meditation retreat I ever did, I realized that that memory came to me. This was something I used to do when I was, when I was a kid, just intuitively. And that's not to say I'm some reincarnation of a Tibetan Lama. <laughs> this is some divinely guided awareness. But I, yeah, when I was, I, I was introduced by a, by a friend when I was in, uh, when I was maybe 15 or 16. And that experience of, of being still, of being aware of my breath was so profoundly different than most of my experience as, as a high schooler, as a, you know, a young man and so it really impacted me and i and i i so enjoyed it that i just sort of kept it up i continued practicing on my own eventually you know i just learned through him he had done like a guided meditation practice and so i kept doing what he had shared and eventually i went on google and like read about okay what are you actually supposed to do when you when you practice and i learned what's called anapana the being mindful of your of your breathing and that was my practice for, for years. And through that, I started to pick up certain books. Like one of my first meditation books was Openness Minds by Tarthang Tulku. And it just sort of progressed. I, I would spend my time reading and learning. There's so much, so many great resources out there. So have, having those books, Tarthang Tulku, Thich Nhat Hanh, Philip Moffat is a wonderful Vipassana teacher whose book, um, Dancing with life was hugely impactful for me and my understanding. And then going and doing retreats, I think there's no substitute for, for taking one, three, five, ten days to just dedicate oneself to being with oneself. There's no substitute for that. And so that's been the most impactful. That's been the most beneficial for my, for my personal understanding and my personal practice is having that time that I've taken to go away and and just dedicate myself to the, to the practice. I love that influence you spoke of, of just being aware of sensations in your body. I, I used to, when I was having trouble falling asleep on any given night, I used to just still myself until I could feel my heartbeat. And then once I could feel it, I would then try to feel it in a specific spot of my body, like in my big toe, in my pinky finger, in my bicep. And only when I was actually able to feel it there would I, well, through the process of trying to feel it there, I would become totally immersed in that process. I would typically just fall asleep. Right. Vipassana and Anapana, are these of yogic lineages? I would say, I mean, it depends on your definition of yogic. Yes. I'm being very broad in that, with that term. Right. Yeah. They're definitely yogic and that, you know, the yogi is dedicated to the exploration of the mind and body. Right, but the the practice of vipassana has it's some say it's it's the practice that that the man we know of as the Buddha practiced, and it's mostly within the it was it was sort of kept in the area of Burma, Myanmar for a long time. They say that like the the lineage moved was sort of started with the Buddha and then spread around India and and the the rest of the East. And sort of the, the story goes that it was not, it, it, like the practice changed in most everywhere except for within this, this area of Burma where they say it was kept in its sort of purity. And 
from from there it has since in the last 50 40 years sort of come back to become practiced all over the world again but yet the the practice of of vipassana is a is a certain style of we could simply just say a buddhist meditation practice are there any other lineages or traditions that influence your practice i have definitely dabbled in other traditions like the Vajrayana Buddhist tradition is immensely inspirational. Um, I also find it difficult to practice without a without a teacher on hand. To me, it, it's one of those lineages that like you must have uh, like the guiding influence of a teacher to be able to really put it into practice. And I spent some time with with um, people in that lineage, but I haven't spent as much time on my own on retreat practicing that style of, of, of Buddhism, per se, as I have the, the Vipassana style. It's also, like I said, Vipassana is what, it is mindfulness as we know it in the West. Like they essentially translated the practices of Vipassana and turned them into what we know as secular mindfulness, the mindfulness that you see in schools, in general mills, in you know, corporations all over. Um, so I find it palatable for other people to understand, whereas something like visualizing dakinis or all the sort of visualization practice that you might find in other traditions aren't so palatable. So I find it works for me and, and for other people. You've mentioned a few times retreats. What sort of retreats have you personally been on as, as a student or a participant? Uh, well, the first thing I did when I graduated college was, was go on a 10-day Vipassana retreat. And the first thing I did when I got out of that retreat was go to another one. And I've since gone on, I think, four 10 day retreats, three five day retreats, a few three day retreats. What are those retreats comprised of? What, what is a Vipassana retreat? A Vipassana retreat is a, <laughs> it is a war. <laughs> it is a, a, can be a grueling time. It's like 10 hours a day. If you follow the schedule, it's 10 hours a day of sit, seated meditation practice where you are either being with the sensation of your breath or being with the sensation of your body. It's, you know, wake up 4 a.m., practicing meditation from 4.30 to 6.30, eating breakfast, uh, maybe a, a little break, and then back to meditation from like maybe 9 to 12:30 something like that and then just little breaks and then meditation little breaks and then meditation so it's it's by no means like when you hear a retreat you might think of like being in you know some luscious jungle somewhere with people feeding you fruits and stuff like that it's not that <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not that but you are sort of retreating from your normal world from your normal way of being uh, and you really get to dedicate yourself to like really can you get to be a monk you get to you know all your food is cared for all of your your needs are cared for and you really just get to dedicate yourself to your practice and what is that experience what has that experience been like for you i'm sure there's some highs and i'm sure there's some really deep lows but i yeah i for one have not tried it <laughs> you know the best the best advice i ever got when i was first considering going to one of these was just do it <laughs> which was great because it really cuts through the sort of mental ambiguity of like, do I really want to go and do this? 
is like, do I really want to submit myself to this kind of potential torture? It is challenging. By no means is it not challenging. But I, I don't have any, and this is, not, this is just my experience. I know many people, depending on their, their state, uh, the, like where their life is at, where they are at psychologically, it can be very challenging and, and disconcerting almost. And in fact, well, some people should just not go because of the intensity of them. But if you're in a good place and um, you know, you're sound of mind, it can be challenging. But for me, it's, it's, really, it's been the only places that I can reach a level of depth in my practice that I can, I can access sometimes outside. But having that total dedication for that long of time with no distraction, there's no phones, there's no talking, there's no eye contact, you know, there's no exercise there's no it's just like you're just doing this one thing and so that level of singularity of focus um for me provided this place to to really go deep into it and really to develop a strong foundation in that in that practice and so it's been immensely impactful for me are the settings of these vipassana retreats typically more off the grid rural rustic settings or can they be done in urban environments in, in the middle of cities? To my knowledge, I've never found, or my experience, I've never found uh, this style of, of retreat down in a city. Most of the ones, I mean, let's see, all of the ones that I've been to have been removed. And it's not to say it's not possible, but it would definitely provide its own challenges to be in the middle of a city. And, you know, it's not to say that you can't you can't bring the practice outside of that retreat. You know, you, you can and you should, but there is something to be said to sort of the, the momentum that you build in a retreat, the, the depth you're able to go to because of your level of focus and just the, the, the level of commitment that you have to it. You know, you're spending 10 plus hours a day paying attention to yourself, paying attention to your mind and how it works, paying attention to your body. And so, so many things are, are possible. So many wounds are able to be healed just through the pure power of observing yourself. With the teaching that you do, perhaps in particular with the work in the schools with, with school-aged children or kids, I'm wondering if you've had any sort of memorable experiences or perhaps feedback from the participants who you've been teaching the first thing that comes to mind is um, not something that I experienced directly, but, but that a teacher of a certain classroom told me. There was this boy who I, I think they were in second or third grade. And earlier in the year, before I, before I came in and, and shared about, about mindfulness practice in their class, his father had died. And since that had happened, he became very quiet. He would never raise his hands. He would never share. And this was a class that I came into a number of times throughout the rest of that year. But, and I think after the first couple of times, I started to hear little stories from, from this boy in particular, where his, you know, for Christmas, he asked for like a, a meditation bell from his mom and his mom shared that with the teacher. And at the end of the year, this teacher told me that, um, that this little boy raised his hand and she called on him and he said, can I say something? She said, yeah, of course. And he stood up and he faced the class and, and he said, um, as many of you may know, my dad died earlier this year 
And since we've been practicing mindfulness together, this is the first time that I'm not feeling anxious constantly. And he went on to say how much he appreciated the classroom and the teacher and how much the mindfulness practice had affected him. And this little kid, so I think he was like six or seven. And I've, I've, heard, I've heard stories like that. I've, um, I've had kids express to me what, you know, what they feel on a normal day-to-day, kids his age. And it always amazes me that the depth of, of what they feel and, and also these sort of intense emotions that they go through, you know, like asking kindergartners, like, how do you feel normally? And they're like anxious, stressed, afraid, exhausted, things like that. And, and then to ask them out, you know, after we do some practice together, them saying like, I feel happy. I feel, I feel relaxed. I feel joyful. So that's the first thing that comes to mind just because it, you know, it hit me right in the heart when I heard that that story of, of the little boy. Yeah, it's a powerful story. I can only imagine what this work would have done for me at that age and how much that would have accelerated my self-development. I think it's incredibly important and powerful, the work that you're doing and great job on doing that. It's, it's so important and so needed. I will often find, especially in the realm of parenting or in being a partner or in being a son, that I will have moments where I'm aware that I'm reacting in a less than ideal manner. Maybe I'm speaking loudly to my son when I know that it's not necessary and not only not necessary, it's, it's not helping the situation. And I find it's difficult, even though I'm receiving that information from myself, that I'm out of integrity. I find it's difficult to in that moment change and to shift back into a more mindful place and into a place of of deeper integrity. Do you have any tips or suggestions for how that can be done? And is that something that that you find also is a challenge for you? Yeah, I think everybody, everybody has those moments where they realize that they're what they're doing in that moment is less than ideal. Um, or, or, and maybe it's, maybe it's not even noticeable to anybody else but them, but it's less than, than what they know they can be. And I would start to say but by noting that at the very least there's awareness. At the very least there's awareness that the, what, what you're saying or the tone of your voice is less than ideal. Because how many of us in the world are just totally acting out of sort of blind blindness to the effects of what we're saying, what we're doing, having little to no awareness of ourselves um, and our effects on other people. So that's, I think that's a huge step is having that attention to your own personal detail and experience. And how to move beyond that in the moment is, yeah, it's a challenge. It's, it's, I think, everybody's ongoing work. I think having that personal, that personal practice where you're, you're actually sitting and you're observing your, your breath and your body and you're observing your mind, that can build up a sort of momentum and a sort of a tendency that can come into play when you find those things happening, when you find yourself acting out in a way that like, is less than ideal. 
idea your personal practice has given you that sort of potentially can give you that push to make a shift or make a change in that moment, but it's not a guarantee. And I also don't think that like it's, um, it's important to say that, you know, mindfulness is not some magic bullet that once you start practicing it, it's going to shift everything for you and everything's going to change. I think doing other work, um, exploring our psychology in ways that are, that are different, that are, that are multifaceted is, is important. Uh, and to not just rely on one thing and think I'm set, you know, I, I've got this for the rest of my life, um, but to get some outside perspectives and vantage points. And so for me hearing that story, I would, I would come back to the lens of, of men's work. I would, I would come back to the lens of like working with your nervous system in that moment and coming back to maybe your, it could be anything. It could be like envisioning the archetype that you want to embody as a father and letting that come into your mind and your awareness in that moment and then acting from that place, which is not anything. You'll never hear anyone talk about that stuff in Vipassana practice. You know, it's strictly like observe your breath, observe your body. And so, yeah, for me, I, I like to, it's helpful to incorporate outside perspectives. I think it's about finding what works for you finding what works for you. Like maybe you find that breath work is the most effective thing. That when you take cold showers in the morning, your nervous system is primed to be the best that you can be. That doing deep internal shadow work is necessary for you in order to move past some challenge that you have. I think it can be more than just meditation practice to be able to move beyond those things. It reminds me of saying a bit of a joke that the best Zen training is to spend a weekend with the, the in-laws or perhaps, right. perhaps it's your own parents. Right. I find nothing triggers quite like the people who are closest to you and your own families. You spoke of men's work, which I definitely want to get into because I know that's a, a large part of what you do. But before we leave the discussion of the schools and the teaching in the schools, I'm wondering if there are any resources for teachers or parents or students even, who want to get mindfulness into their classroom setting? How would they go about doing that? Well, it really depends on where they are because I think geographically there's, let's say for me in California, there's a higher level of openness to this sort of thing than say in the Midwest. In my experience, like just the level of Men, like mental openness to different ideas coming in and incorporating them into the classroom is going to vary depending on where you are. But that being said, there's so many resources that, that we can use to first, I think, just bring it into our own personal life. And so that can be through the use of books, the use of apps, um, the use of, uh, you know, the internet has so many great resources if we use it that way. And developing that in ourselves so that when we go to let's say the principal we can speak from a place of like authenticity and and personal experience instead of our ideas about how things should be or how we should change things to make them more the way we like and yeah that being that those things being said there there are people who do like myself who do trainings for teachers where we'll come in and and teach teachers how they can use these things in their personal life and in the classroom if, if you are a teacher and your school is not available for that kind of thing, there's a number of organizations that, that can show you how to use it that have online trainings. Mindful School is based in the Bay Area is a great resource. It really depends on what your intentions are. 
you can do a lot just in your own classroom. Going school wide is a much more difficult thing um, because you have to have the buy-in of a lot of different opinions. There are plenty of resources and they grow every day. There's more and more people doing this kind of work. You mentioned apps. I know you were involved in the Zenbox wellness app. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that app is? Yeah. So Zenbox is a wellness app that was sort of designed with millennials in mind. And the millennial generation is a generation with that's grown up with a lot of information thrown at them on a lot of sort of a lot of options through the internet. And and the creators found that like they wanted a place, they wanted to create a place that people could come to one place for everything and specifically around the areas of wellness. So they they brought on coaches like myself to work on or to basically develop courses for exercise, nutrition, uh, meditation, and mindfulness and have it all in one place. And so it's fairly new. So we've just got one course up there right now, the Foundations of Mindfulness course, but it's a it's a 12-part course that has um, sort of a theory section of like why we and how we, we practice and then uh, also guided guided practices that are recordings that you can take and use for your own personal practice that are varied you know from five minutes to 20 minutes and it's a great resource uh this first course for, for really anybody who wants to bring some momentum back to their practice and also beginners who want to learn about sort of the foundations and what are they why we do these things and, and then how to, how to practice them you mentioned millennials and the digital age and all the digital resources that are available, not just to them, but to everyone. Yeah. In your opinion, how has the digital media or media in general, and that includes social media and, and mainstream media, how is that impacting our ability to live more mindfully and what opportunities does all of that, I'm going to call it distraction provide us yeah well it does in a way provide us with a big opportunity and zenbox sounds like one of those opportunities right right yeah it provides us with resources that we wouldn't have otherwise um or that would be challenging to to coalesce and at the same time we all have there's so much there's so much that has gone into these devices and these platforms that are designed to sort of steal our attention. And so the, the mental, I think another opportunity is, is to develop mental fortitude and willpower and discipline to have really strong boundaries um, so that you use these tools and, and they don't use you. And I think especially for, for the millennial generation and, and younger, it becomes harder and harder because our brains were, you know, sort of subject to this massive social experiment and so we've grown up thinking that like this is like our brain has become like chemically accustomed to to facebook and and instagram and all of that stuff and i think there's a big detriment i mean specifically around the level of let's just keep it at mindfulness most of the time when we're on social media we're practicing the exact opposite of mindfulness we're like actively exercising a lack of mindfulness we're just 
looking for the next thing that's pleasant, which is not going to do you any favors if you ever do go on one of those Vipassana retreats, because the whole thing is, is to not, the, the mind's tendency is to look at what's pleasant and want more of that and look at what's unpleasant and want less of that. And so it's sort of an active exercise in just wanting more and more pleasant uh, experiences. And um, I think it has a lot of, it has a wide range of effects on, on how we view our life and how we view ourselves. Um, I know you're not a parent, but you do have a lot of experience with school-age kids with your teaching. I'm wondering if you have any potential tips or advice for parents who have children who are glued to their devices, so to speak. Mm. And the, the hit, the, the digital dopamine that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenging thing that I'm, um, I'm playing out my potential scenarios now. I don't have kids, but I'm playing out, you know, how would I, how would I do that? How would that work? Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a personal thing, but it, practical tips could be one, first and foremost is, you know, are you practicing what you're asking them to do? So if you tell them, hey, you know, get off your phone and you're on your phone, they're going to see that and they're going to rebel against that. Um, so I think that probably the most straightforward thing to do is reflect on your own use of these kinds of things. And show or, and reflect on what you're modeling to them and model to them something different, something that you would want for them. Um, and, you know, there's different things that you could do. You could, you could start to show them that you're taking digital sunsets. Like when the sun goes down, all right, my technology is going off. Um, and then you can invite them into that. You know, you can create that experience for yourself and then invite them into that instead of, you know, requiring them to do that kind of thing themselves. Right. It reminds me, one of my good friends is a physician and also a mindfulness teacher. He teaches mindfulness to physicians all around Canada and maybe beyond. He was telling me a story, I believe his son's around 12, and he's been teaching his, his children mindfulness since day one. And they begrudgingly will go along with his breathing right. exercises. <laughs> but uh, recently they were on their way to a karate practice that his son takes very seriously. And he was anxious that they were going to be late, which is a, a big no in his dojo. But uh, my friend said he looked in the mirror and saw his son doing a particular breathing exercise that he had taught right. him. And it's the first time he had ever seen him do this on his own. And he asked, he said, are you doing the name of the breathing <laughs> exercise? And his son said, yeah, I, I realized that there's no point in me stressing about what I can't control. And so he was focusing on controlling his stress response which is right. what he is in control of. I thought that was a, a great tip for all parents as far as walking the walk as, as this mm -hmm. physician certainly does and also being patient with, with your teachings and with your, your students and your children. Yeah, I think that does point to one thing which I saw immensely as a teacher is that, especially with younger students, you really have no idea what is their actual experience. Like, even if you think, oh, like that kid in the front, he's, he definitely doesn't like me. He definitely doesn't like any of this. He's like, he's, he's dreading every moment. I remember how I had one of, the, one of those students who was like the class clown who 
was like at the very beginning would always try and distract everybody by any means possible. And by the end of the year, he was wanting to lead the class. He was like asking if he could lead the meditation practice. Um, and it was so surprising to me because I had this idea of what his experience was. And so I think it's, it's for anybody really, but especially for kids, um, never take what appears to be their experience as exactly what it is because there's always so much more. Yeah, that's great advice. Let's shift a bit to the men's work that you're doing. And that's how I got to know you. I know you're doing some incredible work and setting up amazing opportunities. So let's, uh, if you don't mind explaining that a bit, I believe your company is called Men's Wisdom Work. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Why don't you take us for a stroll through that and and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, So yeah, men's work has been a big part of my life now for, for five years. And, um, I have helped to build this organization, Men's Wisdom Work, with um, a, a mentor and a now business partner of mine, Zot, Zot Baraka. And we, Zot has been in this work much longer than I have. And um, I have helped to sort of uh, frame all of his genius and, uh, and um, have, have come along to offer it to more and more people. And so we've developed now um, a, a, a coach training for men who are interested in being of service to other men through one-on-one coaching or, or men's group type activities. Um, and yeah, we, we have a variety of, of methods, um, coactive coaching, shadow work, uh, spiritual psychology, um, the big emphasis on practice, um, using, using practice to move beyond our, our limits, um, to expand our, our capacity to strengthen our nervous system. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, I think one of the biggest, the biggest things that we do is we provide a container for men to come into that is, that is trustable, that, that they can, they can be themselves they can get feedback from other men in and be in a space really that we don't have a lot of opportunities in our normal day to day to be in um, a space where we can actually be real. We can be ourselves and we're, we're, um, we're welcomed as that. And in fact, we're encouraged to be just that and nothing else. Um, and so for me personally, that's been incredibly impactful. And um, I love that, that I get to, I get to support men in doing that. Um, through this organization. Alan, what is men's work and why is it important? So funny, I, I was in a conversation with a, a men's coach yesterday and he said, I hate that term, I hate men's work. <laughs> um, and his reason, I'll, I'll explain his reason and then I'll tell you, I'll answer your question. His reason was that it, uh, it seemed that it was exclusionary and that it, um, that, that women have very similar uh, issues and challenges. And so to call it men's work seems like it's, um, it's exclusive. Um, and I understood that. I, I say that's okay. It's a great opinion. Um, and to me, men do have certain experiences that are, that are selective, that are exclusive to men. 
we experienced the world in a certain way. We were, you know, really no matter where we grew up, we all experienced sort of similar conditioning and and a certain flavor that that um, affected us. And men's work has been a it's been a growing body of work um, that has been. It draws on traditions that are that are ancient. It draws on initiation traditions that are timeless. It, um, it, it draws on tribal structures that are that have gone back for millennia. And nowadays, it's a sort of blend of of many different many different sort of influences from all the in, initiation practices to things like somatic work, meditation, and mindfulness, yogic exercises through the lens of hatha yoga. Yeah, kundalini all different kinds of practices and then also the getting into psychology looking at our shadow looking at how we project onto other people and it's become a, a term that people use often and it can mean many different things i think it really one of the biggest factors is sort of the generality is that it's it's men doing work with other men like we're we're, we're somehow working on ourselves in some way, shape, or form, and how that will take place will depend largely upon the, who's facilitating it. It could be anything from doing painting and exploring your inner child work, or it could be uh, like a deep, dark expression of sadness. You know, it just it it has such a wide range. But the main factor is that it's men supporting each other in their personal or spiritual growth. What is some of the current work that you and Zach are doing with Men's Wisdom Work? Well, in about a month's time, I don't know when this will air, but in at the end of May 2020, we have our coach training, which will be a group of a group of men coming together for six months. This is what this is what you did with us last year. I'm really excited for that. I love seeing the transformation that men that men go through in that journey of of learning to to be more of service particularly to men, but, but also to anyone that can take the skills that they learn in that program and apply it really to anything. So that's, that's the main focus right now. And then we also are, we're expanding our, our other online offerings. Um, and so we have ongoing men's groups that occur on a weekly basis. And then we have sort of more practice oriented groups where we're focusing on sort of the more somatic uh, meditative lens and giving men a space to be together and do those kind of presence-based nervous system-based practices through this online online platform again we're in quarantine right now so it's a great opportunity to be able to connect with guys through that online lens and then yeah we've got some other things in the pipeline we've got some some shorter programs that are more focused on personal and spiritual development and not so much on sort of the professional skills of coaching and then yeah we've got hopefully once all this lifts and life returns i don't know about normalcy returns but if we're able to travel again safely then we'll have uh some in-person stuff as well i want to give my own personal support for the work that you and zad are doing i've seen firsthand how transformative it can be for men and i know personally from leading my own men's retreats and also from having participated in numerous retreats and workshops that it is 
this type of work is something that I strongly encourage any man to look into and consider doing. And to, to not exclude, there's also equal opportunity, if not more opportunity out there for women to also come together and work together to do their own personal development and groups that's, that is, uh, provide a supportive environment. So I encourage everyone to check it out, look what's available to them. I'm going to put in the show notes, the link to men's wisdom work and everything that we've talked about here so that people can, can look up the work that you and Zad are doing. Is there anything currently that you're focusing on that has you really excited, Alan? That you uh, haven't discussed? Maybe you've already discussed, discussed it. Well, you know, one thing is just like a, a personal practice for me has been writing for a long time and I put it on the back burner and uh, this, this quarantine has given me a little more time to focus on it. And it's something that I've always loved to do. And so waking up earlier in the morning and having that, that silent time to myself to be able to sort of allow my thoughts to flow to paper has been a, a really wonderful thing. And that's something that I'm, that I'm really excited about. And hopefully a book will be coming along in the pipelines within the next year or two years from that. What does that writing look like for you? Is it personal reflections, ramblings of the mind, or are you focusing on something more specific as you write? When I am, when I am writing with the idea of a book in mind, it's within the focus of men's work and, and meditation and how those two things coalesce. It could also be the ramblings of the mind. And just, <laughs> Before we kind of segue into our conclusion, you, as you've mentioned, we're in kind of the quarantine time right now with COVID-19. I am personally doing a media fast. I'm not listening, watching, looking for anything anymore. I'm uh, kind of in, in my own little lockdown, just trying to stay in my own little bubble with my family. And, but people are being bombarded constantly with countless opinions and fear mongering. And I've heard of people who are unable to sleep. I've heard of people. I just heard of, well, someone who's, who's actually a contractor employer of mine just had a, a nervous breakdown. And this, it doesn't seem to be unusual right now. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have any mindfulness tips or, or practices that you can suggest here as we wrap up that can help people through this scary time. Right. Well, I think for those people who have had a personal meditation or yoga practice for any amount of time or have been on the spiritual growth path, and they say, this is really what you've been training for, right? This is, this is a time and an opportunity to put all that stuff into practice in a real way. And so that might look like many different things for you, but just a reminder that if you've been cultivating the power of your mind, the peacefulness of your, of your internal state, to use this time as an opportunity to like really double down on that and to double down on, on those things that support you in doing that, whether it's meditation practice or yoga practice or internal arts, whatever it may be. And I think one thing that, that meditation does is it, it encourages, before anything else, our own experience. 
they say like in the Buddhist tradition, the highest wisdom is, is of your own direct experience, the wisdom that you glean from your own direct experience. And so as we're all bombarded by all these opinions and going to whether they're 100% accurate or, or if they have some agenda or not, the fact is that they are really good at inciting our nervous system and exciting an emotional response from us. And so I would just encourage people as much as possible to, as you're doing, set up some structure in your life so that you can be with your own experience and you can allow that to have its, its say in, in what, your, what your emotional response is going to be or how your, your, the actions that you take for this whole thing are. And take some power back in that. Allow, allow your own internal wisdom its seat at your, at your council. That's great advice. Thank you for that. Where can people learn more about you, Alan, the work that you're doing? I'll put all of this in the show notes so you don't have to spell things out, but if you can just let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah. I like you for better, for worse. I'm I'm on the social media platforms. um, And I'm, I don't know, I don't know if it's naive, but I'm actively trying to be more active. (laughs) So you can find me on Instagram and, uh, and Facebook, and I'll provide you with the links for that. And then I have a personal website, livewisemindfulness.com. And then menswisdomwork.com is, is the men's work organization that I am a part of. Any last minute resources you can recommend? You mentioned a few books, Open as Mine, Dancing with Mm -hmm. Life. Any other books, mm. podcasts, websites, teachings? It always depends on what your flavor is. It depends on what your flavor is. And so if the, the, the Buddhist lens of life works for you, then the, those books are really wonderful. Uh, Ram Das, a great spiritual teacher, who actually that quote that you said uh, around, if you really want to test your, your level of spiritual enlightenment, like that was, that was him. Um, brilliant minds he passed away this last december he's got a, a they have a podcast of all his recordings that i've taken a listen to during this quarantine time a couple of times that there's just so much beauty and, and wisdom in there so i would recommend that for those who who aren't familiar with ramdas or don't know that he has that that material out there and yeah i i would just say maybe again double down on those things that are inspiring to you right now and um, you know what those are much better than I ever would. And so find those things and use this extra time and attention that you have to put, put more effort into them and allow them to inspire you even more. Thank you, Ellen, and very much for your presence today and for the wisdom that you're sharing. And uh, I look forward to our ongoing collaboration and, and relationship. Yeah, likewise, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you feel calmer after listening to this episode with Alan Isbell. If you want to learn more about Alan or study under him, please check out his website in the show notes. The next men's coach training program offered by Men's Wisdom Work begins this month, May 2020. Go to menswisdomwork.com to learn more. For education opportunities in wellness and sustainability, check out the on-campus and online learning opportunities at pacificrimcollege.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. 
Until next time, imagine life as if there is only this time. <laughs>